0: do I sound like a Chinese takeaway (laughs) I am a highly desirable private residence in an area of outstanding natural property values (laughs) and I'm waiting for your apology unless of course the thought of bean shoots and crispy wonton have totally (laughs) stir-fried you (laughs) basically I kindly clear this line There are people of substance in this community who are probably queuing to ring me at this very moment.
1: (laughs) As the pretentious hyacinth bucket, ahem, bouquet, Dame Patricia Routledge took a feather duster to Britain's class system, brilliantly skewering a particular kind of Britishness, as recognisable to the people of England as it is to anyone who knows anything about the nation's character. The legendary sitcom Keeping Up Appearances ran from 1990 to 1995 and quickly became one of the United Kingdom's most successful international productions. But while Mrs Bouquet is certainly her most famous role, it's just one of the now 90-year-old Dame Patricia's many achievements in a career that spanned nearly 70 years. From her monologues as the suburban spinster Kitty, broadcast live as part of the comedy series Victoria Wood as seen on TV. To her many stage credits on both the West End and Broadway, this veteran legend of stage and screen has established herself as one of Britain's great dramatic performers. I'm Ben Ryland and I'm delighted to say that Dame Patricia Routledge joined me here at Midori House for The Big Interview. So, Dame Patricia, I want to start by talking to you about your absolute passion because, of course, you are known for movies, you're known for television very much, but it seems to me that your absolute passion is still the stage. Is that a fair statement?
0: Well, theatre is the test, really. That's where you learn your job. If you think of quite a number of very successful television actors, their basic training has been in theatre. And when it works, there is nothing like it. The immediate exchange of an imaginative, imagined experience with a live audience. There's nothing like it. It's quite wonderful.
1: Do you think it changes you as an actor if you, if you were to come into your acting career and maybe primarily train in front of a camera... Compare that to someone who has had a lot of stage training. Does it change the way that you approach the craft?
0: Well, you require really a different technique for television or film than you do for theatre. You have to project in a theatre, even though you may be playing an intimate scene. You've got to find out how it can hit the little man on the back row and yet preserve the truth of what you're playing
1: and take me back a little bit first because I'd like to know how you came to be in a career on the stage you grew up in Cheshire and uh, this would have been during the second world war I imagine that at that time a career in the performing arts wouldn't have been shall we say the most obvious choice how did it all come about to you
0: I don't know. I always say that kicking and screaming, I face my destiny. I grew up in a family that loved theatre, and I lived in a wonderful town called Birkenhead, which had a quite marvellous music hall, the old music hall where you would have a list of turns. And, I mean, some of the great comedians which I saw, I saw some of the greats, and they took 30 years to perfect their act. And they were going round the country, doing twice nightly, maybe, and then moving on, testing themselves against a live audience. And so I used to, as a quite a small child, hear my mother and father talking about the theatre they went to and my mother took me to my first opera, La Boheme. She took me to my first Gilbert and Sullivan. And uh, one just loved it all. But I had no intention whatsoever of going on the wicked stage. My <laughs> intention was to teach this wonderful English language, which I grew to love in composition. And then when I was at school, we used to learn great chunks of poetry, some of which I can still remember. But I thought it was all part of education. You know, reading, writing, arithmetic, history, geography, sing a song, do a dance, recite a poem, play a part. All part of this wonderful discovery. But, of course, it's... It's really the people who are your mentors, who spot a seed of something in you and nourish it. And then you have to begin to take it seriously yourself.
1: That mentor that you speak of there, I'm assuming you're referring to the academic Edmund College.
0: Well, eventually. But, I mean, my first mentor was my mother, Not that she was in any way pushy theatrical mum. I mean, you didn't do that sort of thing where I came from, you know. (laughs) And you were never told where I came from that you had anything really special in case you got a swollen head.
1: (laughs) Did you feel as if you had something special, though?
0: I didn't think of it in that way. I was one of the very few people willing to give up my Thursday lunch hour to study the recitation of of lyric poetry, sonnet, epic, Shakespeare, improvisation. And so it was all going on behind my back, really. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, I'm a great one for recognising the signs I think the great trick in life is spotting the opportunities and the great skill is choosing the right ones.
1: Let's fast forward slightly because you eventually, of course, made your way to the stage at the West End. You made your London debut. When you got up on stage at the West End for the first time, of course, unmistakably, this is now your career, you're on the stage. Did you feel as if you'd made it?
0: Never. Never. You never feel as though you've made it. Made what? (laughs) I had considerable repertory experience. There were repertory companies all over the country. And that's where you begin and make your mistakes and observe the more experienced players. The great tragedy now is that those repertory companies no longer exist. You would be part of a group of people who were there for 12 months, two years, three years. And I had an open invitation to audition for the Liverpool Playhouse, and finally took a deep breath and went down and auditioned. And I thought, if I'm not offered a job, as an unpaid assistant stage manager, then that's the writing on the wall. That says it. I'm not good enough, but I was offered a job. And then I trained further at a drama school, Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, very prestigious, and then began to earn a living. I always swore that if I didn't earn a decent living within four years, I would pack it in.
1: Well, thankfully you didn't, and thankfully you've made it this far. Thank you. (laughs) But tell me, it is always tempting to look back at something, whether it's it's, uh, theatre or any sort of performing art and say, oh, it used to be so much better than it is today. But you, of course, you do still go to the theatre very often. You're still playing roles in the theatre often as well. Well,
0: I enjoy a busman's holiday <laughs> very much. I like to see. I'm always amazed how they're up there doing it. You know, when I see someone like McKellen or David Suchet or Judy Dench or... I mean, this country is full of wonderful actors
1: I want to talk about your leap to Broadway you did that in 1966 with a play by Roger Milner yes it was titled How's the World Treating You now the review in the New York Times it was by Walter Kerr it opened with this line the new comedy at the music box is yet another British import and before it goes back two of its players should be captured and kept so the theatre review of the New York Times thought he should keep you on Broadway, that you weren't allowed to go back to the West End. That's a fairly promising start, isn't it?
0: Well, it was very exciting. It was a very exciting play, which began life at the Hampstead Theatre Club, a small theatre up near Swiss Cottage. And then it transferred to the Arts Theatre. Then it transferred from the Arts Theatre to Wyndham's, a small and very good American management saw it and took three of us across to Broadway. And so that was my debut. He was very generous to me, Walter Kerr, and he was a very important uh, critic,
1: of course, New York Times. Absolutely. You wouldn't get more prestigious, certainly, even now, but certainly back then as well. What was it like, though, making the leap into Broadway? Because you were coming from a culture like the West End, which has its own very rich traditions and Britain has its own very, very, well, functioning, thriving theatre industry. Then to make the leap into Broadway, one imagines that it must have been a very different culture. Did you feel as if you were perhaps their Dame Patricia Routledge, touching down on Broadway inside a spaceship, getting off onto this strange new planet?
0: Well, there was so much to take in but it was so exciting. But at the heart of it all, you do your job. I mean, you don't alter a performance because you're in New York. You tell the story and adhere to the character or characters in this case. There were three different characters I played, as you would When you first started to explore the play, I enjoyed it very much.
1: Did you find that there's a substantial difference between the styles of acting? A lot of people say, look... On the American stage, people act this way. Things are more exaggerated. It's all very, very different, whereas the certainly the rhythm of a performance seems to be different here in London. You can have a few pregnant pauses along the way. You can allow the audience to pick up on what's being said simply through a pause in a sentence somewhere, whereas in American humour and in American writing, that might not be quite the same. Did you pick up on those subtle differences as well?
0: I think with regard to comedy... The American audiences require it to be spelt out, rather. I think we're subtler, really. And sometimes an American audience will not uh, grasp the irony of a, a character or a situation. But the wonderful thing about American audiences is the warmth of anticipation. When they come into a theatre, they're determined that they're going to have a good experience and they're going to enjoy the evening. And that, you can almost taste
1: it. I completely agree with that. You are, of course, most closely associated with television acting. And there is your most famous role, Hyacinth Bouquet, But that didn't come until the 1990s. I just want to talk about your initial foray into television because initially you weren't attached to any long-term series for quite a long time. It was only that long-term commitment that came later in your career. What was it about television that drew you to that form of craft? I can only imagine that at that point, back in the early days of of your career, the idea of a a theatre actor... Acting on television might have been quite different. A lot of theatre actors didn't really take such a kind of view to the medium of television. It's good
0: writing. One responds to good writing. Television, of course, began to give opportunities, wider opportunities, to actors who had spent the major part of their careers in theatre. It was a medium that you had to address. I did take part quite early on in some episodes of Coronation Street, and uh, all I knew was that I didn't want to get caught up in that forever.
1: Was there something about the... The process of acting in a soap opera that made you think, not quite right, as I understand it. There were
0: other adventures to have, more interesting, really. But it was nice to be asked. and I did three episodes, and then I departed, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not fortunate enough to have ever taken a role in a soap opera. I mean, there's still time in my career. Maybe I'll get to that point at some point. But my understanding is that acting in a soap opera... The metabolism for soap opera acting is actually quite fierce and we often sort of look down upon the soap opera, but the craft and the effort involved in in making a production like a soap opera is actually quite enormous.
0: And the discipline. Uh, You know, you have to shape your life round the requirements of rehearsal and presentation. But I didn't want to get stuck forever in... That goes for uh, keeping up appearances as well.
1: Talk to me about Victoria Wood first, because before Hyacinth Bouquet there was Kitty and your, your participation in Victoria Wood as seen on TV, that series. To anyone who knows you first and foremost as Hyacinth Bouquet, they might be surprised at just how we could say abrupt, maybe blunt, But how ferocious a character Kitty was. How Grotesque. She She was grotesque. She was grotesque. Absolutely. But somehow, Kitty being expressed by Dame Patricia Rutledge, she doesn't come across as grotesque. Oh, she does to me, if ever I (laughs) catch her.
0: Oh, yes, I was terrified of that. They were four-minute monologues by this ridiculous woman who had become an overnight celebrity because she'd walked the Pennines in slingbacks or something in the interests of mental health. I mean, very <laughs> dangerous stuff. But I remember I was terrified because they went out live. I was testing new comic material in front of a live audience for the first time. I mean, on the whole, you know where the major laughs should come, but there are always surprises. And Victoria used to find me hiding in the wardrobe area, you know, uh, reluctant to to go out into the studio, and she'd say, come on, they're all waiting for you, and so on. But... um, Very skilfully written stuff. I mean, I think with that kind of comedy and with the famous lady that we're going to talk about, I suppose, I think you paint with poster colours. They are larger than life. And so you've got to take that risk, really. Risk.
1: It's what it's about. Risk. Risk. Speaking of risk, a lot of people who can watch those monologues, Kitty's monologues, they're easily accessible. People can relive them. But a lot of people won't understand or appreciate that they were done live. There was a lot of risk involved just oh. in the making oh, of this. Oh,
0: yes. Oh, I was miserable. <laughs> I was glad she didn't write any more for me. I think I begged her not to, really. Oh, you make me quite nervous looking back and thinking about it all.
1: Nevertheless, there is something much more intimate about television, isn't there? Because at the theatre, people have really made an evening to come out and, and watch you. They're coming into your environment, the theatre, whereas with television, you're being invited into their environment.
0: We are coming into their sitting rooms, invading their homes, which is why people often in the street think they can be very familiar with you.
1: (laughs) Tell me about the segue from Kitty into Hyacinth. It does seem like a bit of a, a natural progression when we talk about it.
0: Well, I didn't think of it like that at all. I'd done some of the wonderful Alan Bennett monologues, which he had written for me. And I remember when Victoria approached me about playing the... Kitty Roll and she sent me some scripts and I got in touch with Alan and said that I'd been offered. He said, is it funny? Are they funny? And I said, yes, I think they are in a strange kind of way. And he said, well, do them then. (laughs) Because he had already established the monologue, television monologue, with some wonderful writing. And I didn't uh, want to um, invade that uh, space, but he was very generous.
1: You've reached a point in your career now where you've achieved so much on stage, on, on television, in films. And yet, in a lot of people's eyes, the defining role for Dame Patricia Rutledge is going to be Hyacinth Bouquet. Oh, yes. How do you feel about that?
0: Well, there was a life before that, and there's been a life afterwards. If people get stuck with that, I can't do anything about it. If it brings people into a theatre for a performance I'm giving because of that, I couldn't be more pleased, and they might get a
1: surprise. <laughs> Have you met people like Hyacinth Bouquet?
0: Oh, yes, of course. I remember them from down the years. They're all over the world. They're everywhere. They're recognisable everywhere.
1: They are recognisable everywhere, but the thing is, and this was interesting for me having having watched it as a young child growing up in Australia... There is something uniquely British about it, and yet it does translate well into other cultures because, as you say, they are everywhere. But at the same time, it does invent this sort of safe space for us to really pick up on a certain kind of Britishness and feel okay at laughing at that, this sort of assumed prestige that comes with a class society.
0: But pretension is universal. I get letters from all over the world. Still, I know that they're going out everywhere still. And pretension that doesn't achieve its goal is at the heart of comedy. Malvolio, Mrs Malaprop, some great characters in literature. And that's what's recognisable. People who think they're a cut above everybody. They're there in society all over the world.
1: Did you feel that you understood her as a character of beyond I did. the caricature, she but as a person? She leapt
0: from the page when I read the first script. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I looked back and remembered ladies like that when I was quite young. I've always been a great observer of. Uh, people. (laughs) So it came in handy.
1: I would imagine that you still get requests, not only to talk about it, but to also jump back into her character. But there was a clear point where you decided, "No, no, no, this is enough. Do you think it's important to be able to switch things off, not when they've become exhausted, but when you've decided, Okay, I think
0: it's essential. I always remember the great Ronnie Barker. And he would stop something when he was at the height of it. And it's better to go out when people might be saying, oh, aren't you going to do any more than saying, oh, is that still on?
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Yes. No, and I felt the writer was recycling old ideas. And I wanted freedom to become somebody else, really. I didn't want to get stuck with her for eternity, though I'm very grateful to her, I must say. It would be churlish of me
1: not to be. <laughs> We're all grateful for Mrs. Duquesne. <laughs> I recall the great actress B. Arthur once saying that even though she'd achieved so much in her career and she had no regrets whatsoever... She was grateful to everything and everyone. There was one little niggling thing inside of her that wishes she could have played one particular role, and for her, that was Mama Rose in the great musical production of Gypsy. For you, is there a particular production or a particular character that you look at and say, "Oh, if only I could have done that?
0: Just one. I don't spend energy regretting, but I would have liked to have played St Joan in George Bernard Shaw's um, play. But the time has gone.
1: Nevertheless, you are still on stage, though. You're still remarkably active in the industry, and it is obviously your first great love, theatre. What keeps you coming back to the stage? What is it that draws you back?
0: Well, I'm not concerned, uh, certainly not in the last couple of years, with doing eight performances a week in a drama or play or comedy. But I'm concerned now with what I would call being on the concert circuit with two presentations, one called Admission One Shilling," which tells the story of the great international pianist Mara Hess, who at the beginning of the Second World War well known and much loved. She decided that people needed some spiritual nourishment and she suggested that they might give uh, some lunchtime music concerts in the heart of London. And I indeed saw and heard her play during the war as a schoolgirl up in Liverpool not only did she organise the National Gallery concerts and play it, a great many of them, she shot off to other areas that had been badly bombed, as indeed Liverpool was, and played there. And I'll never forget not only the great gifts, but her whole demeanour. So there's that, and then there's another conversation with a wonderful man called Edward Seckerson, who he wouldn't like me to call him a musicologist, but that's the nearest description. His knowledge of all kinds of music is gargantuan. And Ten years ago, he rang my agent and said, "Uh, it's one of the best-kept secrets in show business, how much work... Patricia Routledge has done in musical theatre and the amount of success and would she have a conversation with me about it and we'll do it in front of a small audience it'll be recorded it'll go out on Radio 3 and I had such a regard for him that I said yes, straight away now we don't do it too often in order to keep it fresh it has a structure but it doesn't have a script. And we presented it on Sunday last at the exquisite Haymarket, uh, Theatre Royal Haymarket in London to a wonderful audience.
1: Extraordinary. And so nice that you're still that you're still performing on the stage and clearly still absolutely enjoying it as well. Dame Patricia Routledge, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, thank you for your time and your interest. And your enthusiasm. Thank you very much.
1: My thanks to Dame Patricia Routledge. She stars in Admission One Shilling, alongside pianist Piers Lane. It's playing at the Royal Overseas League here in London on Tuesday, the 11th of June. The Big Interview was produced by Jolene Goffan and edited by Nora Hole. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you very much for listening.